you may or may not know this about Apex. Apex is a network of house churches, which means throughout the Dayton area and believe it or not beyond, uh, we have people who gather in their homes throughout the week for the purposes of fellowshipping uh, and, and dwelling together as family, whether that's in person or online with Zoom, as many of us are doing right now in the midst of COVID, uh, and reflecting and responding to what it is that God is saying to us as we then go out and live life with him on mission. So if you ever are interested in joining a house church, you can go to apexcommunity.org uh, and then you'll see a little button that said, I'd like to join a house church. On that, you'll see a map and on that map, you can easily email one of our uh, house church leaders and they'll be happy to reach out to you and help you feel connected. Another quick little announcement for you, if you don't mind a minute. Uh, a few months ago, Mike had shared the, the vision with us all about Apex Delivers. We are in the midst of a weird time where many of us are feeling disconnected, as Chad alluded to. And I'm not sure about you, but when it comes to this time of year, many of us have uh, a, a renewed sense of both hope and loss. Um, whether we've lost loved ones around this time of year or just because of the grief that sometimes winter can bring, that sense of feeling disconnected is probably going to be higher now within our culture uh, than it has been previously, especially and exponentially influenced by COVID. And so we have offered uh, to you all, and, and now through you all, Apex Delivers. Apex Delivers has been a way for people who have not been able to gather in this space to feel connected uh, to something bigger than themselves. And uh, you can actually, for December, pick up your boxes today. Uh, so please do that. Uh, but through you, we would also like the opportunity uh, for you to, to begin delivering a package yourself to, to someone else. And so we've come up with a friend box. Uh, this friend box will be sent out in early December. Uh, and in it, you'll have a, a handmade ornament that says comfort and joy on it. Quite a fitting uh, reminder for this type of uh, thing we're going through in this season. Uh, a great little box of Winans uh, chocolates and uh, a little illuminated uh, mason jar with some firefly lights in it. Uh, it was actually the similar thing that you got in your November box as a reminder of light and hope in the midst of uh, a cold and bleak what uh, can be winter. And so those are $20. Uh, you can go to apexcommunity.org uh, and fill out your information, uh, make payment. Uh, and the last week that you can register uh, for that, uh, the last day you can register for that is November 29th. So one week from today. And we'll be mailing those out the week of December 6th. I've already gotten three uh, for family members of mine uh, who uh, I know are, are having a little bit of struggle being connected. And so maybe that's something that you can can do too. Well, this morning, uh, as we turn to God's word, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 24, uh, 1 through 12. Uh, you can get that out now and go ahead and, and look it up. But we're getting ready to the culmination of this whole narrative we're, we're reaching to this morning. Uh, and, and it's really exciting because we get to talk about the resurrection, this, this long foretold prophecy about a coming Messiah who's going to conquer sin and death finds its fulfillment in this morning's conversation, in this morning's text. And it was, of course, it was, it was funny waking up. We've had all this beautiful weather. And then on Sunday, the first day of the week, when we, when we celebrate the Lord's resurrection every week, and then this particular morning uh, when we are talking about it, it seemed fitting that it's nice and gray and cold and cloudy and, and basically terrible outside. 
And it kind of was like, I was kind of laughing about it to myself because that's kind of like what 2020 has been, right? Um, I saw a meme this morning. If you guys have seen the classic uh, 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 movie Princess Bride, um, in it, Columbo sits down with the kid from Wonder Years, and I guess they're, they're related to each other, grandpa and, and grandson, and he reads the story about this, this harrowing prince uh, who, who saves the lovely princess and, and helps uh, her escape from the arms of, of a, a terrible and dreadful uh, uh, prince who's, who doesn't want anything to do with her in reality. And so uh, in it, there's always these little interruptions that are going on as they're telling the stories. And so they do quick cutaways back to the grandpa and this, the grandson. And in this meme that I saw this morning, it said it was one of these cutaways. And it's Columbo saying to, to Fred Savage, uh, now where were we? Ah, yes, the pit of despair. And that's kind of what 2020 has been. It's been a huge, long year of the pit of despair. And that's what we're going through collectively, let alone what our own personal challenges that we're facing and our own personal pits of despair. Where so often when we are in the midst of, of this life, we're just overwhelmed by the death that surrounds us, by the bleakness, by the coldness, by the darkness. And it's into that setting that we meet these women. It's the first day of the week and they go knowing that their good friend had just died. And they take spices with them. But they are caught off guard. They're surprised by what took place. Let's read it in Luke 24, 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stole rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, and be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others who were with him who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like, them to not, like to them nonsense. Peter, however, got up and he ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what happened. Let's pray. Father God, just as we are encountered uh, by you through, your, through your word, may your spirit speak to us uh, everything that Jesus taught. May we be reminded of just who we are and our station in you and Christ. Uh, for those of us who may not know you yet, Father, would your love and kindness uh, bring us to repentance? 
Lord, we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. One of the very first things that we want to look at this morning is uh, the nature of the setting that we're in. Uh, it is three, three women and most likely some others who they're going to the grave on, on the first day of the week. And they have this experience in which uh, the two men that are there, that greet them there, who, who in the other Gospels, in Luke and Mark and Matthew, identify these as messengers or, or angels, uh, that they greet these women and, and they ask this, this question, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? Why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? The world was dead. They unknowingly, perhaps even knowing, were dead. They came to find someone dead, and instead they found life. Jesus is life. And then they get this question, don't you remember what he told you the entire time that you were with him in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Several times throughout Luke's gospel, we see that these, that these men and these women, and these women especially, are given chance, uh, special encounters, not chance encounters, extremely uh, specific encounters in which they are wrestling through the teachings of Jesus. Now, this is huge, women wrestling through teachings of a rabbi. Uh, Luke is often called, perhaps, the gospel for the women. It's a gospel in which women are elevated into a position. And in fact, some scholars will even say that men are degenerated into a lower position that would make any reader of the day feel extremely uncomfortable. And here, this very first announcement of the good news is given to these women. And he calls them, this messenger calls them to remember, what is it that Rabbi taught you? Remember as, as you sat at his feet? And of course they would remember because in that time, a woman would have never sat at the feet of a rabbi. Remember Jesus called Martha out of the kitchen and to be like her sister and to sit at his feet? You would only sit at the feet of a rabbi if the intention of the rabbi was to also make you a teacher. That's what we see playing out here. They are relearning the fact that they have been given this lesson to go and share it with others. And what is this lesson? This lesson is that something special happens on the third day. Something special happens on the third day. Now, no doubt that Jesus' disciples had been explained to them a lot of various things. In fact, earlier in Luke, Jesus reminds them about the story of Jonah and how Jonah was going to be swallowed up and, and, and living, actually dying, in the, in, the, in, in, the, in the belly of a whale, only then to be brought back to life on the third day. And he said that's what it's going to be like for the Son of Man. Or perhaps that's the, his allusion to Hosea chapter 6 when talking about Israel, of how all these things must happen, and on the third day, God will make Israel alive again. 
There's something special about the third day. On the third day, throughout scripture, there is life. When we look at the Genesis account of creation, we see two days of three that follow each other. On the first day, we have what? The the creation of light and darkness. On the second day, we have the separation of the firmaments, the, the upper water and the lower water, the, ski, the, the sky and the seas. But it's on the third day that from the ground, from nothing, there, the, the, from the seas, the ground comes up and, and the ground gives forth trees and vegetation. And, and God says to the trees and the vegetation, be fruitful and multiply. And so on the first three days of the creation account, we see this pattern of God making things and from things that aren't alive, bringing life. When we move over to the second three days of the creation account, on day four we have the filling of the light and the darkness with, with, the, with the heavenly hosts of the sun, the moon, and the stars. On, on day five we have the filling of the sky and the sea with the birds and, and the sea creatures. But on the th- sixth day, the third day of the second uh, second three days of, of, of the creation account, we see that the, the dust, that God gets into the dust and he takes the dust and he forms it into an image, into a statue. And from the nothingness of the dust, he breathes his own life. On the third day again, there's life. As you guys know the story, the woman as we call her Eve, and, and, and the man, as we call him Adam, they disobeyed God. And instead of living in this third day forever of life, they returned back to the dust. They went back to where they came from. They went back to death. But God made a promise that the son of the seed of the serpent who had deceived him, his head would be crushed by the seed of the woman, thereby launching God's mission to recreate all things. And this idea of third day wasn't anything that went away. In Genesis, we are told of the story of Abram. And Abram and Sarai, they're given uh, a promise from God. Go to the land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And through you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, when they had received this promise, years had gone by. They grew in age. Sarai was confused. She's like, how on earth could I give birth to anyone at this age? As we see in that promise of Genesis 15, when God cuts his covenant with them, he follows up with, well, when's this going to happen? And so Sarai, they, they have this name change, and it becomes Abraham, taking on the breath of God in their life. He becomes father of, of many nations. And Sarai, who becomes, which literally means Sarah, as my sister never let me forget, means princess. And they carry forth the promise in their bodies, the breath of God in them. And they're given this son. And God says, 
on the third day, take your son up to a mountain and I want you to offer him over as a sacrifice for me. And just as Abraham is lifting up to strike his son, knowing hopefully in faith that this, even if the son were to die, because I trust God's promises, he'll bring him back to life and the promises will continue. And God, seeing Abraham's act of faith, calls out and says, stop. And he provides a ram in the thicket on the third day. In Exodus chapter 19, God's people are told over and over and over again with the gift of the law and, and, and the whole prov- process of, of bringing about uh, God's works and ways in their lives through the tabernacle system that it was on the third day that they would go up and they would receive this from the Lord and on the third day they would enact this covenant with God. So you see, you can imagine as the, the women heard this, remember? Remember what I told you about the third day? And there, seeing that their Messiah, that Jesus was not there. In fact, that's what, uh, that's what they call him at this point. They call him Lord Jesus for the first time in all of Luke's Gospels. And seeing that and remembering everything that, that Jesus had taught about the third day and remembering the overarching story of God and the third day, look at what their response. They remembered his words. And then from there, they took that message and they shared it with others. It's not explicit in this gospel, but in Luke, I'm sorry, in, in Matthew uh, especially, they are commissioned by these, two, by these two messengers to be ones who go and tell the others. Here in this gospel, it sounds like they're just excited and they're telling, but no, in Matthew, it says explicitly that these women are commissioned by these messengers, by God, to be the first ones to announce the good news ever, ever. Mike had shared a little bit ago uh, when we're talking about him, uh, on, Jesus on the cross, about how the f- there, we're going to see a lot of firsts now, right? When Jesus was on the cross, the first person to enter into paradise was a criminal, the lowest of lows. And now here, we're seeing the lowest of lows within this society be the first ones to announce the good news. These women. If you remember the story of Mary Magdalene or perhaps Joanna, both of these women were women who had been uh, taunted uh, and and, and tormented by evil spirits. And Jesus had set them free from that. Joanna, we know her her husband's name was Huzza, and he was a man of great means and wealth. Uh, If you've ever seen, he's what's called amongst the Nibetans, most likely a Nibetan, which was an extremely wealthy a people group within uh, the ancient Near East. Um, and he lived in Herod's house. Uh, and so these were women of both high means and low means, but simply because they were women, they had no credibility in court. 
Josephus, he says uh, there's basically three uh, types of, of, of rules for what brings credibility. This ancient Jewish historian who gives us a lot of insight into time uh, uh, and, and the culture of the of the time, and he said, "Well, the first thing that uh, prevents someone uh, from from testifying in court is if there's not two or three witnesses. So there at least has to be two or three witnesses. That's what we're seeing here, right? At least a couple witnesses. These three plus the others." And then the other thing that could not be uh, someone who testifies in court is a slave. Someone who's enslaved could very, be, very well easily be manipulated or, or bribed by their master. But then the third case of people who could not testify in court is what makes up over half the population in the room this morning. Women. Women's word had no authority in court because they are often thought of as senile as ridiculous, as the Reco and Romans thought, less than human. The first shall become last, and the last shall become first. Jesus is beginning to flip the world upside down. That's the power of his resurrection. And so these women, fool, of this truth about the good news of Jesus, were the first first commissioned missionaries, the first ones sent, the first preachers and the announcers of the good news. And so in their excitement, they run off to the 11. And I mean, these are their friends. They should trust them, right? Let's look. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense to them. That same similar word that Josephus uses to describe why women's accounts can't be held up in court. You see, the, 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 the 11, they had forgotten. They had forgotten that Jesus had taken women and placed them into a position and a stature of honor. They had forgotten about what they had, he had said about the third day. They had forgotten what Jesus had said about making the first last and the last first. They were still living in a world ruled by death. They're still living living in a world ruled by fear, by guilt, and by shame. And explicitly within this culture, they continued to shame the women. There was one guy though, his name was Peter. And Peter, he instead got up and he ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So there's one, one of the 11. And most likely John, as John tells in his account, uh, the beloved disciple, 
also goes with him. There's a lot of debate as to why various uh, gospel writers choose the details that they get to choose. You can get into that uh, with some sort of comparative analysis uh, criticism, but we're not going to do that this morning. But here is Peter, and he's, he's coming not quite with faith like the women. Maybe curiosity. And when he sees that the tomb is empty, he stands there. And the word here is described as in awe, amazed. What I love about this story, about how the resurrection impacts God's people is that we're all in varying stages of belief. We can easily look at this story now from the advantage point of being, you know, thousands of years away from it and quickly criticize the 11 for their, their posture toward these women or perhaps I feel identified with the women and responding with faith or, or maybe you identify with Peter and you are still not 100% sure what to do with this Jesus guy yet but you see his works and you hear his words and you learn about his ways and you're kind of amazed at them that's what I love about the way Luke captures this is of his disciples, it runs the whole gambit and this first experience and expression of the resurrection of various stages of growth and belief. And that's really good news for us this morning because some of us might have woken up on the wrong side of the bed and, and we've kind of forgotten who we are and whose we are. Others of us woke up and you're you know, having your great quiet time and, and whatnot. And so that's, I think that's the question is, now that this resurrection is here, how do we make sense of it for our every day? What does it mean? We're gonna look real quickly at a passage in Ephesians chapter two. You're gonna get the JZV, uh, the Jason's Astro version, um, but feel free to look at that if you'd like. But in Luke chapter 2, and actually starting in chapter 1, there's this really beautiful picture. Actually, I am going to turn there just so I don't mess it up. So in, sorry, not Luke chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, forgive me. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we get this picture. He, I remember the first time that I heard this, this story, uh, and this kind of opened up my eyes. I was traveling back uh, from seminary where I was going up in Chicago uh, over to, um, back to Dayton with my buddy Justin. Uh, and he had been kind of explaining Ephesians to me, and I was like, dude, I really don't understand this book. You, you love to study it. Can you kind of explain this to me? And he's like, here's what Ephesians is about. Here's what Ephesians is about. Ephesians is about the resurrection and it changing the entire world. That's what the book of Ephesians is about. And so here's this picture. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he says, this is the gospel that I've, that I've gone and I've preached, that Christ died according to the scriptures, uh, that, that he was buried, that he was raised according to the scriptures, and then that he appeared to everyone, first to a few like Peter, and then to uh, the 500, and then at an unlikely time, he appeared to me. And in that appearance, Peter, I mean, Paul had his own resurrection experience. This was a man who, because the church was proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, he was killing them. It was offensive. This idea that somehow resurrection was taking place here and now through some guy named Jesus. 
And yet that is exactly what the church believed. And it was their empowerment. It was the, the, the thing that which their faith hinged upon. It is the thing that still to this day our faith hinges upon. Whether or not Jesus raised from the dead. Because as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, is, is that Christ is, is uh, um, a foolishness. Uh, oh man, I'm really messing it up. Christ is foolishness to the, the, the Jew and, and, and to the Gentile alike. That we, uh, that we participate in his resurrection. And this is where he is at now in the book of Ephesians. Is there is this picture of Christ and he is enthroned on high. This is what he says in verse 17 of chapter 1. He says, I'm asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance of his saints. This is what, this is what Paul is saying. He is saying, I want you to have a vision. I want you to picture Christ enthroned in the heavenlies. He goes on and he describes how Christ has been raised and he has been seated above every prince and power and ruler and authority over the powers of sin and death and he has made them into a footstool. That is the picture of the resurrected Christ. That upon his ascension, he took life and he held it out to give to the world and he made death into his footstool. And then in chapter two, we're kind of like, okay, this is great, but what does this have to do with me? And so he goes on and he says, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us. I love that. It's not that just that God is love, but that God loves us with that love. With the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us with Christ by grace you have been saved. And he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages, the fullness of the blindness and riches of his love towards us might be made manifest. I've taught this passage often, and forgive me for a second, I'm gonna grab something. I've taught this passage often in a course that we uh, used to have here called Foundations, and hopefully you can still see me on the camera, but this is my chair, right? I have a chair in my house. It's a recliner. It was gifted to me by some dear friends here. Uh, it's a beautiful brown recliner. It, it's uh, leather. It looks like something that should be in um, a library, and in fact, it's in my library at home. And I sit on it every day. I sit on it every day because I need to remind myself 
where I am seated. What Paul says here in this passage is he says that if you are in Christ, you have been made alive. You have been raised. You have been saved, which means that you've been delivered from death. And that's not it. You've also been seated. That picture of Christ enthroned on high with him making a footstool out of his enemies. What Paul is saying because of our participation by faith in Christ, our incorporation into him and his dwelling in us, that we are now seated with him in the heavenlies. The tense of the verbs here are all aorist, which means that there's something that are already real. And so I am seated with Christ in the heavenlies, but I am also seated right here, right now. And the way that I teach us, and I'll ask you, where are you seated? Right now, where are you sitting? In the heavenlies. But where are you seated? In a pew, at apex, or on your couch at home. But where are you seated? In the heavenlies. But where are you seated? Here on earth, in Ohio, on a, on a cold and muggy day. Ah, yes, but where are you seated? With Christ on his throne. This is the power of the resurrection. That we are raised with him. And that we are seated with him. And here's the cool part. I'm still seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Still seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Wherever I take my chair, wherever I take my throne, I take Christ with me. I take him wherever I go. We sang earlier bits and pieces of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. With the resurrection, we get the beginning of the answer to that prayer. It's in us. Heaven is in us. Through the gift of the Spirit, I mean, get this. The Spirit, which was only able to be approached once a day by the most holy of persons set apart to approach the Spirit of God and the Holy of Holies, we are now made that Holy of Holies. We are now made that temple. And we take him wherever we go. Life, death, resurrection on the third day. And so we must always remember to die quickly so we can rise quickly. Die quickly to arise quickly. I got that little phrase from someone who's been important in my life for the last two years, Sally Breen, Mike's wife, 
Uh, she's discipled me. It's been, you know, not like a, you know, we're getting together at coffee once a week and having a discipleship conversation. It's just life on life, and I'm learning from her. So this great woman taught me that little phrase. I always noticed how she was always joyful and how she was always keeping a positive attitude. And she said, we get to resurrection more quickly the quicker we die. I think that's why Jesus says, anyone who wants to follow after me must die to himself. Take up his cross and follow after me. It's not like we're just killing ourselves with a spiritual self-flagellation. He wants us to die to ourselves so we can experience his resurrection. Every day. Die quickly, rise quickly. So if there's anything that you get from today's talk is that the quicker you die to yourself, to the fear, the guilt, the shame, and the quicker you're made alive by the, the power and the resurrection of Jesus, the more and more you go through that process of life, death, and resurrection, that is the Christian life. We are continually inhabiting the third day. Let's pray. Father God, just thank you so much for your promise of Christ throughout the whole of Scripture that we are looking forward to this third day in which that which is dead is made alive. And ourselves, Father, thank you for, for loving us. For as Paul writes in Romans 2, that it's your kindness that leads to repentance. And for making us alive together with Christ. Continue to remind us that we take your throne room wherever we go, Jesus, because your spirit dwells in us. And help us to live a life of joy and celebration that points back to you. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.